Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. Uh, the literary style is a narrative, which is the, the telling of a story. Um, I've been starting with that fact uh, as we've been working through the book of Matthew. Uh, this series will take us from Matthew chapter 1 all the way to Matthew chapter 7, so not the entire book, but it'll take us through the Sermon on the Mount. And I think it's important for us to continue to go back to the fact that Matthew is a narrative because it helps us understand the book. It helps us understand the content because you have to read the book of Matthew differently than you read one of the epistles, for example, which is much more uh, teaching and instruction. This is, this is the telling of the story. It's the telling of the story of Jesus. It's the telling of the story of Jesus from his birth all the way to his death, resurrection, and ascension. And so you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're all telling that, that same story, but they have uh, different minor emphases on each book. And it's important to understand uh, how the book was written and what the major emphasis is and the minor emphasis. And Matthew, as he tells the story of Jesus, has a running minor emphasis of a fulfilled promise of the coming Messiah. The fulfilled promise of the coming Messiah. So what you see throughout the book of Matthew is that Matthew was predominantly written to Jews who would have known the law, who would have known the Old Testament quite well. And so you see a whole bunch of quotes from the Old Testament, and you see uh, even the word fulfill or fulfilled used in repetition over and over more than any of the other Gospels. Last week we discussed the beginning of Matthew chapter 3 and the story of John the Baptist and the prophecies that are connected with the um, in the Old Testament in, in both Malachi and Isaiah uh, that prophesied the coming of someone who would go before, somebody who would prepare a people for the coming of the Lord, somebody who would go before the Christ, someone who would shout uh, in anticipation of the coming Christ. And we see how that was John the Baptist and the running theme of I will go before you, quote unquote, I will go before you, that we see all the way from the beginning of the children of Israel all the way through the end of time when Christ has said, I will go before you to prepare a place for you and then I'll come again and call you unto myself. So a lot of beautiful things and a lot of great promises that we see there. So last week was the story of John the Baptist and this week is the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. All right, so Matthew chapter 3, verse seven, uh, 13 through 17. Let's begin by reading that text. It says this, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Verse 15, but Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. It's a relatively short text, uh, but it's a pretty important text in the baptism of Jesus. And I think uh, when you look at a text like this, it's always important to ask questions anytime you approach Scripture, whether it's in your quiet times or um, you're studying it with a community group, it's always important to go through and ask questions. And one of the big questions that's asked of this text is, is quite simply, why did Jesus, Jesus need to be baptized? John the Baptist is established, and we, we can cross-reference it with the other Gospels, but, but John the Baptist was uh, preaching repentance. 
He was telling the people, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he was, he was baptizing people as they repented in the Jordan River. And it says that people came from all over the area. And it says that even the Pharisees and the Sadducees, we talked about that last week, also came. And John the Baptist called them out and says, whoa, you need to make sure that you are actually repenting here and that this isn't a show. All right, so John the Baptist is about repentance. He's about speaking of the, of the coming kingdom of God. And he's about baptizing people who, are, who are, have already repented. And then Jesus enters the scene. This is the first time that we've seen Jesus since his birth and his flight to Egypt and return. So there's this gap that the Lord in his, in his wisdom, we just don't know much. This is about 30 years later. John the Baptist and Jesus were contemporaries. They're born within a couple months of each other. Uh, so we haven't seen Jesus until now. He enters the scene. John the Baptist recognizes him. And in John the Baptist asked the question that we just asked in the text. Whoa, why do you need to be baptized? In verse 14, it says, John would have prevented Jesus from being baptized. He says, I need to be baptized by you. But yet you come to me? Like, what, what's going on here? And Jesus replies to that question. And so Jesus is reply to that question is really where we're going to spend our time this morning answering the question why does Jesus need to be baptized verse 15 Jesus answered him let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness let it be so now for thus it is fitting it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness so i what i want to propose this morning is that there are three reasons why Jesus needed to be, needed to be baptized uh, number one, what we have here is we see that there's something that we call the, um, the uh, salvation history, that certain things needed to happen in order to establish Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Oftentimes, you can go back into Scripture, and you can get caught in the trap of saying things like, <clears throat> yeah, but couldn't God have just fill in the blank. Uh, yeah, but couldn't God have just forgiven Adam and Eve and started over? Yeah, but couldn't God have just, why did Jesus need to die? Why did curse need to be put on man, all of mankind? Why did, couldn't God, since God is so God, why couldn't God just do these certain things? But what we see is this concept of salvation history that certain things needed to happen in the life of Jesus Christ to establish him as the Messiah. Example, he had to be born. All right, so that's step one in salvation history. We can't have a Messiah if there's not a Messiah here. So if you had this timeline of things that needed to happen to establish Jesus Christ as the Messiah that is foretold in the Old Testament, certain things needed to happen. For example, he needed to be born. We see that here. He needed to be baptized. We're going to talk about that in just a second. He needed to also face temptation, which is what we're going to talk about next week. It's, it's the story where he goes into the wilderness and actually faces temptation uh, from Satan himself. So the Messiah, part of what makes the Messiah the Messiah is somebody who has actually been tempted and stood up against that temptation so that he could become a sacrifice for us, so that he could become pure for, that, for us, so that he could maintain his Messiahship. All right? Also, for him to become the Messiah, he would need to be rejected by man, which was prophesied in the Old Testament. And we see that he's even rejected in his hometown. Also, in that, in that course of salvation history, he needs to die. I mean, if Jesus didn't die, he, he wouldn't fulfill his role as Messiah. 
You see how this is all coming together? Okay, so there, there's a series of things that needed to happen for Jesus to establish himself as the Messiah. After he died, that couldn't be the end, right? He had to defeat death itself and rise from the dead. But not only that, he didn't just keep on living, but he then replaced himself at the right hand of God when he ascended into heaven. So you could come up with more of these different steps. But one of the steps to establish Jesus as the Messiah was that he was baptized. And the baptism of Jesus is an inaugural event, all right? It's an inaugural event. When you think of inauguration, you think of the president president of the United States. I mean, there are different types of inauguration, but that's the most common example. We see it's outside, it's a mass gathering of people, and it's official ceremony. If you look up inauguration, it's... uh, defined as to install somebody in office with a formal ceremony or dedication. To install somebody in office with a formal ceremony or dedication. What happened with the baptism of Jesus is he was publicly identified as the Son of God, affirming not only to those people around him, but also to John the Baptist, who's a key figure in this story, that he was, in fact, the coming Messiah. Um, When Jesus... Back to the president example. I don't really... I wish there was a different example, but I was talking to somebody yesterday, and they said, it doesn't... I'm not trying to make a political statement here, <laughs> but this person who I know, I don't, uh, I don't know where they stand in their faith. We were, Laura and I were at a birthday party for a little one-year-old, <laughs> and you meet all kinds of people, you know? And so this person said, I just, I wish that there was somebody better running for president. She was speaking on both sides, you know? I wish, it doesn't, she said, it doesn't seem like there's anybody who is able to uh, kind of do the job, you know? So when we talk about somebody who is inaugurated as president, Um, We think of somebody who's going to enter a position to make a difference. We think of somebody who's going to enter into a a role and do what we kind of desire them for for them to do over the next four or eight years. Um, And the example falls short with with the president because it doesn't matter who you're voting for, but no one is ever going to be able to accomplish everything that they want to do. But what we see in Jesus is that he was born to the Virgin Mary, but he didn't have ministry. He wasn't doing stuff. He wasn't preaching. He wasn't, he wasn't performing miracles. That there was a specific point in time in salvation history where Jesus started his ministry. And he was inaugurated as such. And so what we see at the baptism of Jesus is that at this point in time is when he started his role as the Messiah. And it was a public declaration. Not only a public declaration of John the Baptist baptizing Jesus, But God himself spoke. God himself spoke from heaven here. Thus uh, confirming that this is in fact the Son of God. Saying that this is in fact my beloved Son. It says in verse 16, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son. This is the voice of God. This is the voice of God the Father, with whom I am well pleased. So it's an affirmation that this is, in fact, the Messiah. And from this point forward, 
we see him inaugurated, that his ministry has begun, that will take him to a point of death, resurrection, and ascension. From this point forward, not from this point past. So you have somebody, John Piper gave this example. He said, you, we could have somebody living today uh, who will one day be president, and they might be in kindergarten right now, and it's just kind of, in our political contents, context, that's not that big of a deal. It becomes a big deal when he's inaugurated as president later. You know, So in this bigger scale, epic, eternal scale of Jesus Christ, it was a big deal that Jesus was born, that he came, was born of the Virgin Mary. I mean, that's a big deal. But there's a specific point in salvation history where he is inaugurated and shown to be the Son of God, and things begin. And so I like to put in the little quotes, at this point, at the baptism of Jesus, so it begins. That's kind of the feel of what's going on here. So it begins. Now, where the presidential example kind of falls short, because people leave office, or people don't do a good job, or they're not able to accomplish the things that they want to, the hope that we have is this. Jesus is still in office in that sense. That when he was inaugurated at his baptism, he didn't, he didn't leave the office. He is still representing you and I, if you're a Christ follower, to God the Father himself. That even though he accomplished his earthly ministry, even though he, he accomplished salvific work on the cross and then defeated death itself by proving it when he raised, rose, himself, rose himself from the grave, and then ascended into heaven in front of many witnesses, and he is seated on the right hand of God, he is still in that inaugurated state as the very Son of God who represents man to God. And that is part of what it means to be the Messiah, that he has, in fact, gone before us, as we talked about last week, that he has gone before us and that he has already paid the penalty of our, of our sin. That's already happened past tense on the cross. But future tense, when we see in John 14, when he says, I am going before you to prepare a place, that he is there now, future tense, preparing a place to call us unto himself for those of us that are, in fact, Christ followers. So reason number one why Jesus needed to be baptized was because it was an inaugural event beginning his salvific ministry as Messiah. The second reason why Jesus needed to be baptized Once again, in, John, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, it says, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, if you've read your Bible much in the course of your life, you would probably agree with me, agree with me <clears throat> that there is just some lingo and some language that you kind of got to sit there and chew on. What is this really saying? Um, if you're reading an old King James Version, it might have a lot of these and thous. But this says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Um, let me give you my interpretation of what, of what this means. All right, now, I'm not changing scripture here. Okay? But if I were to say this in, in regular conversation, this is how I would translate that or interpret that. That Jesus said, it is right for us to do this in order to do the will of God. It is right, or the right thing is for us to do this, meaning baptism, in order to do the will of God. So the ESV says, let it be so, for thus it is fitting, 
meaning we need to do this, it is the right thing, for us to fulfill all righteousness. What is righteousness? Godliness is what righteousness is. So it is right for us, in order to obey God, to do these things. There's an author out there by the name of D.A. Carson, and the way that he explains this element of this text is that when Jesus says it is fitting for us in order to obey or in order for, for us to fulfill our righteousness, that he is speaking of obedience. He is speaking of the obedience of Jesus Christ to God the Father. A key element of obedience is something that we call submission. We see throughout the texts of the Old Testament and the New Testament the idea of obedience, the idea of submission, and the idea of servanthood. And if somebody is a servant and somebody has a ruler or a master, what the servant does is he falls in line and submits to the master via his obedience. He does so by his obedience. And what D.A. Carson says is that the servant, the servant's first mark is his obedience. He also says that this obedience that we see of Jesus, meaning Jesus who is obedient and so therefore he got baptized, this obedience starts, again as Carson says, starts the known trajectory of obedience as unto death, as his assigned work as the Messiah. Let me explain that for a second. If you're Baptist, many of us are, this is a Baptist church. <laughs> you don't have to be Baptist to attend this church. Um, but if you've had conversations about baptism, one of the sentences that you probably have heard before is that baptism is a step of faith. It's a step of obedience as well. <laughs> okay? Mm-hmm. That it's not, it doesn't save you. You know, the act of being baptized doesn't save your soul, but it is something that we see in Scripture as a command. And if you are falling in line, submitting your life to Christ, then what you do, if you're Baptist, and we can talk about the baptism thing later, is that you submit yourself to where you see the call of obedience. And the call of obedience is um, to be baptized. But if you've committed your life to Christ, you are not committing your life simply to the next act of obedience. You're committing your life to a life of obedience, that there is a trajectory of your life, even though you might not know where it's going to take you, even though you don't, might not know what relationship you're going to end up in, even though you might not know what job you have or what financial situation you may be, you might not even know if your life will be long or short, but, but living a life of repentance for the gospel, in the name of the gospel, and a life lived for Christ means that you're living a trajectory of obedience. And Jesus, being all-knowing, following in obedience, and being baptized... He knew what his life of obedience was going to look like. He knew where it was going to end. He knew that it was going to end at the injustice of the cross. He knew that it was going to end with his friends running away from him. He knew that it was going to end with his clothes being stripped off of him and him being bludgeoned almost beyond recognition. And he knew that it it was going to end at the cross or it was going to take him to the cross. He knew that the finality wouldn't be there. But he knew that he was going to begin this life of obedience that was going to be a, a tough road. D.A. Carson also says that the temptation story that we're going to talk about next week continues to confirm Christ's submission 
to quote every word that comes from the mouth of God, as we see quoted in John chapter 4. And that Jesus rejects the devil's temptation of power and of glory in, in the wilderness, that he is living a life of service. Later in the book of Matthew, chapter 20, verse 28, it says, Jesus says that the Son of God came not to be served, even though he's the very Son of God, but to serve. So we see the servant idea falling in submission to the will of God. But the verse continues to say, not to be served, but to serve, and then to give his life as a ransom for many, so that his obedience would, ta- would, would go all the way to the point of him giving his life. In Philippians chapter 2, and it says that Jesus made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself in submission by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross. So this act of obedience, when it says, thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness, Jesus was saying that I am beginning this road of submission to my Father in a whole different level. Not that he wasn't submissive before, but he is now inaugurated in a new position. And that he is beginning a life of a whole different level of obedience. Um, when God the Father in Matthew chapter 3 verse 17 says this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased what we see is uh, very similar language in the book of Isaiah now what we've done as we've gone through the beginning of Matthew is we've seen a lot of the prophets uh, the prophets prophecies being fulfilled in the coming of Christ You don't have to flip here now, but I will ask you to flip to Isaiah in just a minute. But through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah is speaking for the Lord in Isaiah 42, and he says this, Behold my servant. This is speaking of the coming Messiah, the coming Christ. So God the Father in the Old Testament, 800-some B.C., is saying, Behold my servant, meaning the submissive, obedient Christ. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Doesn't that sound just like in my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased? With whom my soul delights. And then it says, I have put my spirit upon him. What happened in the baptism? The Holy Spirit came down and rested on Jesus Christ. He made him, um, I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. So again, John, uh, Matthew chapter 3 says, And behold, a voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. In Isaiah 42, My my servant that I have chosen, in whom I delight, I have put my spirit upon him. And he will bring forth justice to the nations. Have you ever heard of the term, the suffering servant? Um, It's it's rooted in Isaiah 53. And that's where I would like for you to, to flip. All right, so go back to your Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 53 prophesies of the coming Messiah, yet says that this coming Messiah is not going to be this king riding up on a white horse with armies and armies behind him who will defeat the powers that be and to reestablish the nation of Israel, which is what people wanted. 
They wanted to be out from under the rule of the Babylonians. They wanted to be out from under the rule of the Assyrians. They wanted to be out from under the rule of the Persians. And they wanted to be out from under the rule of the Romans. And so one day there's going to be a great eternal king that's going to come. And they interpreted that to mean on this earth that we're going to rebuild David's temple, that we're going to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. When in actuality, the prophet Isaiah I'm going to read all 11 of the, uh, 13 of these verses. Speak a very different story of a humble, submissive, obedient Messiah. So Isaiah 53, verse 1, says, Who has believed what they heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is prophetically speaking of the coming Messiah 800 years before. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. We referenced that in the history of salvation. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we, as mankind, esteemed him not. Verse 4, surely... He has bore our griefs and he's carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgression or our sin. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought peace, and with his stripes or his wounds we are healed. Verse 6, we all like sheep have gone astray and we have turned away, everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all he was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb he was led to the slaughter like a sheep before its shearers is silent and he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment he was taken away and as for his generation he considered who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living stricken for the transgression of my people and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of God to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. It's kind of bleak, isn't it? This is the suffering servant. And what D.A. Carson here is arguing is that by Jesus saying at the baptism that I, it is fitting, it is right for me as the Son of God to be obedient in all righteousness, meaning obedient to God the Father, it is right for me to begin now with this act of obedience, beginning a trajectory of obedience that is going to take me down the road of the suffering servant Messiah, which is what Jesus Christ did. Now the thing is, is that it is right even now in 2016 for us to look at Jesus as an example 
Um, it's, uh, it's, it's right and it's fitting for us to look at Jesus for our motivation. That there is and can be joy in the idea of laying down your life. And the whole ceremony of baptism says that I am buried with Christ. And so you go under the water. So I am dying as Christ has died, but I am coming back to life spiritually as Christ has risen from the dead. So that he and I can be of the same family. There's a holy joy in laying down our life to be buried with Christ so that we can rise with him. And I think what we see here in following the example of Christ, and I don't want to be cliche here, because we all have heard the lingo, you know, we should all, what would Jesus do, bracelet kind of idea. But if you think about it, that when Jesus was baptized, he knew that he was setting himself up for a trajectory of obedience to God the Father. And if you are a Christ follower who has been baptized, then you are setting up your life with the same trajectory, not necessarily to the point of crucifixion, but saying that I'm going to live my life in obedience. That, that, that you have a different prize that you're living for. That the things of this world are not what it's about. That this isn't what it's about. That there's nothing uh, wrong or sinful to pursue excellence in your career. There's nothing wrong or sinful to have a savings account or to have good friends and have meaningful community. But that the things that you live for are based on a different trajectory than, than people who don't have Christ. And to say that first and foremost, I am looking to be obedient. Come what may. I am looking to live my life in obedience because that's what Christ did. And if it takes me to death, I don't desire that, but so be it God because I believe in a joy that can be mine if I live a life of obedience, even unto death if God were to ask that of me. And so it changes the way that you live. It ought to change the way that you think. It ought to change the way that you maintain friendships. It ought to change the way that you see uh, your career in the secular world. It ought to change the way that you do school. It ought to change the way that you date. It ought to change the way that you live your life in marriage one day. That the trajectory is obedience. Thy will be done. Not, not my will be done. But Christ has gone before us. We see in Hebrews chapter 12 that even though Jesus lived this life, which was a life filled of, of uh, people looking down on him and being rejected, but it says that he did it, Hebrews chapter 12, for the joy set before him, not the joy of the moment of that day. Saying that there is something greater. And so I'm going to go through this crap, or I'm going to go through this hell, or I'm going to go through this battlefield, or I'm going to go through not being the next guy on the, on the totem pole at work, or I'm going to go through not having as much money in my savings account because I'm actually giving back to the Lord, or I'm going to go through this, this level of frustration or temptation or whatever it may be because of the joy that is set before me, which is greater than what I, whatever I'm battling with today. And that's the example of Christ that we can follow, that he inaugurated with his baptism. So first, we see that Jesus was baptized as an inaugural event that began his messianic ministry. Second, we see that it was an act of obedience that, that um, started the trajectory of his life. And the third reason why Jesus was baptized specifically 
as Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 3, let it be so now. He's speaking to John the Baptist. Let it be so now, moment in salvation history. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all of righteousness. So when he uses the word us, speaking to John the Baptist, he's making a connection there that there is a prof- that there is a prophecy that is being fulfilled that isn't just that of Christ, but combines the prophecy of John the Baptist. <coughs> John the Baptist was the prophesied forerunner of Christ to make people ready for the coming Messiah. How did John the Baptist make people ready? He preached the gospel. He preached the gospel of repentance because the kingdom of God is here, and he baptized people. Uh, Repentance, by definition, is turning to obedience. Repentance is turning to obedience. And what people were doing in mass, we see it throughout the Gospels, they were responding to John the Baptist's message of repentance and turning to obedience. So people were acting. They were turning back to God as they began a new life of obedience, inaugurated by their own baptism. In the same way, follow my, follow my logic here, okay? Just as people were turning from their life of sin and repentance to a living a life of obedience, beginning with baptism, Jesus did the same thing, though he didn't need to repent. Jesus Christ, though not needing to repent, acted in obedience and inaugurated his public life of ministry from that point forward, knowing that it would lead to a life of submission to God the Father and ultimately death. So this act of baptism by John the Baptist for Jesus Christ showed him not only to be the Son of God as as testified by God the Father, but Jesus also by that baptism identified himself with mankind as the Son of Man. There's a Brit uh, professor named uh, R.T. France. He passed away a couple years ago, and he said that if Christ is going to be a representative of mankind, he must be identified with them. If God was going to send his son to be the representative of mankind, then Jesus Christ himself has, must also be identified with them. And what we see here is that Jesus is identified with the other people who are repenting. He's identifying with other people who are living their lives as an act of obedience that is inaugurating the rest of their life. What we see throughout the context of the New Testament is that Jesus can continue to be identified with mankind. The thing for us as we look at the baptism of Jesus is that God is identified, as, as Christ is identified with us, is that he knows our pain. In that, in God's providence, God left Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, on this earth to live life for a while. To show that he could stand up against temptation. To show that he could stand up against the pressures of this world. To show that he could stand up the pressures of the, of the political system at that moment. To show that he could stand up to the pressures even of the physical world where he spent 40 days not eating in the wilderness. And he could stand up to the, to the pain that was associated with the crucifixion. And that Jesus does, in fact, literally know your pain. Your physical pain and your emotional pain and your social pain and your mental pain. And your pain of not understanding even what, what your future may hold for you. That Jesus knows 
the very force of temptation. Every single one of us in here has had to deal with sin in our lives, and some of it is habitual. Every single one of us in this room has had to deal with stuff that you regret and you hope nobody finds out about. Every single one of us has had to deal with darkness even in our minds that hasn't materialized necessarily in action, but you still know is sin. And Jesus knows that temptation. When you try your hardest to say, I'm never going to do that again, but you still do, that Jesus knows what that temptation feels like. That it's not just a passing like, hey, I understand because I'm God and I understand everything. He was tempted, and it was alluring to him, but he withstood the temptation because he can understand our pain, that he knows the attacks of the devil's lies because he was lied to by the devil in the desert when he was starving, when he was hungry. And I think there's something to this, and we're going to come back next week and talk about the temptation of Christ in the wilderness, but he didn't eat for 40 days, and that's not figurative. All right? How many of you have ever been hangry before? You know, We have been. And the thing is, is that our physical situations affect our spiritual lives, honestly. You know? If you're down and you're discouraged because of a broken relationship or a job that just fell through or, or your family, your parents are fighting, whatever might, you know, you're more prone to sin in that situation. We've all been there before. You're more prone to sin. And Jesus' physical situations were changing, and he felt different levels of intensity and temptation, just like you do. And he fought it with the word of God. He didn't just fight it with some mysterious, super spiritual force field. He said, I'm Jesus, and I'm just going to push away the temptations of the devil. He fought it with the word of God. This, the same thing you have. And so he fought it with the same weapons that you have. He knows your pain. He's felt your same temptation. He's heard the lies, and he's, com- he's, he's combated them. That Jesus, in the course of his life, was knocked down physically and spiritually in many ways. But he still was able to withstand the devil. And we've been through times in our lives where we're dry and we're parched and maybe we're confused. Maybe we're discouraged. Maybe we really have blown it with certain levels of sin. And because Christ has gone before us as a model and as an example and he's identified himself with us as the very son of God, you can always say, I'm not alone. Even if you're physically alone, even if your friends abandon you, Jesus, he knows that. In his theoretical hour of need, when the enemy was literally there and the betrayer had kissed his cheek and he knew that the crucifixion was hours away and his friends ran, he knows what it means to feel alone. But because Christ has gone before us, he says, I, I will never leave you. I will never leave you. I can always be depended on to be here for you. And I have been there, I have done that, I have felt that, and I have withstood. And so can you, not by yourself, but through me, can you win the day. You are not alone. He has felt anguish. He has felt sorrow. That Jesus Christ has wept bitterly. Think about that. The Son of God, John 11. He's wept. I mean, how how does somebody who's all-knowing and God allow himself to 
in some sense kind of lose control because he's crying so hard um john in that story in john is you know it's lazarus but he had just told his disciples over and over and over that this isn't going to end in death so jesus knew but yet he wept because he felt pain he saw people mourning and it broke his heart and he wept he knows he's been there and he won't leave you and so when we see this relatively short text of jesus being baptized I think sometimes, if you don't spend any time there, you could be like, yeah, 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 Jesus was baptized, and he kind of moved on in his ministry. This was a big deal. John the Baptist was a big deal. People all over knew about John the Baptist. Herod knew about John the Baptist. Herod hated John the Baptist. Herod had John the Baptist's head cut off. Okay, so he was a known figure, and he was a prophetic figure. He was the last prophet of the Old Testament. He baptized Jesus Christ, and the baptism of Jesus inaugurated his earthly ministry. It showed that he was living a life of obedience to God the Father in the suffering servant model that we see through Isaiah 53 prophesied, and that he did it to identify himself with man, with you and I. So be encouraged by the baptism of Jesus. Be encouraged by the things that we see here that Jesus did with the joy that was set before him, Hebrews 12, of one day sitting at the right hand of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, your word. And Father, as we look at the beginning of the story of Jesus Christ and his ministry, Father, there's so much that we can, we can be encouraged by. There's so much that we can look at and say he has gone before us, that he has been there and he has done that, and that he sits as a mediator between God and man. And that his office is still in play. That he it started with this inauguration, but he is still there representing us. And one day he will call us to himself. I thank you for that hope, and I thank you for that promise. And Father, please be with each one of us as we walk through the ups and downs of life, as we walk through the ups and downs of this week, that we would hold on to the fact that we have something more to live this life for. I thank you for that. I thank you for Christ and the gospel. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.